You're listening to Lisa Valentine Clark and Richie T. It's The Lisa Show. Hey, you're listening to The Lisa Show. A lot of people are are looking forward to a new season of sports, whether it's for themselves or for their kids. And the next couple of months involve signing your kids up for each sport they want to participate in, getting the equipment. As you move into the season, though, it's important to know about brain trauma in youth sports and how it may impact your child. I know that there are a lot of conversations around this issue in schools, with parents, in communities, and certainly in sports organizations about how we can keep our kids safe, which sports will be able to do it, what the latest research is. So we thought that this would be the perfect time to have a conversation with Julie Stamm. She's the author of a new book, The Brain on Youth Sports, The Science, the Myths, and the Future. And so she joins us to discuss what we need to know and how we can keep our kids safe this season. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for your time. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So this is a, 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 a hot topic as we look at sports and which sports we offer kids. Um, let's start out with the, the, the kind of trauma that we're talking about. What is repeated brain trauma in youth sports and how does it manifest itself? Yeah, so we tend to often think of concussions when we think of brain trauma in sports. Mm-hmm. And that's when those hits to the head result in symptoms like, you know, blurred vision, nausea, dizziness, headache, um, confusion, feeling in a fog, things like that. But we're learning now that those repetitive hits that happen in some sports on almost every play also can cause changes and damage in the brain. So think about every tackle, every check in hockey, headers in soccer. So we know that those hits that we used to think didn't Uh have any uh, negative outcomes actually do cause changes in the brain. Um, and those changes have been seen on uh, different imaging of the brain, sometimes with different cognitive tests uh, and or tests of posture, things like that as well. So uh, what impact does trauma have on a, on a child's brain, especially one that's still developing? Yeah, and so that's a, a big thing to think about is the fact that a child has a rapidly developing brain. There's a lot going on, and at times when a structure in the brain is developing really rapidly, that's also a time where development can sometimes be altered or disrupted because, you know, the more that's going on, the more there is to disrupt. So we really want to try to limit those impacts and protect the developing brain of kids while they're playing sports. So, uh, okay, a lot of parents will hear this and think, ooh, uh, maybe... I think it, they'll react in one of two ways, right? I'm not going to think about it. It's probably fine. I did it growing up mm-hmm. right, is, is one yeah. attitude. And the other attitude would be, well, I'm not going to let my kids do any contact sports, no football, no soccer, no hockey. You know, um, what, what's your perspective? Yeah, and that's such an important point. There are so many benefits to kids playing sports from leadership skills and other life skills they can learn, friendships, social skills physical activity, um, so many benefits of sports, and every kid should have an opportunity to play sports. And we don't want to take kids out of sports out of fear of brain injury. So the best way to really um, you know, deal with limit these repetitive impacts, mm-hmm. particularly in kids, but really at any age. But in kids, we can play you know, flag football or tackle bar football where there are bars in the back that you still wrap up like you're going to tackle, but instead you pull these bars off. So mm. instead of taking them to the ground, um, you're pulling the bars off the back. Um, hockey has eliminated checking before age 13. And soccer has eliminated heading before age 11 and limited that to 13. So really eliminating that primary source of these repetitive impacts from uh, certain sports at younger ages will go a long way to protect the brain uh, of our kids while they can still get all of those great benefits of playing sports. How much of an effect then, would it have? Um, it, it can have a, a pretty substantial effect. Studies that look at, for example, tackle football compared to um, flag football, mm-hmm. in 9 to 12-year-olds, a tackle football player on average will experience about 250 to 300 impacts in just a short season. And these seasons are only maybe 20 to 30 total practices and games together, about half of a high school season. Oh, wow. So they're experiencing a lot of impact 
And those impacts, we tend to think, well, they're small. They're not, you know, hitting quite as hard. Mm -hmm. But because their neck is weaker and their head is disproportionately large compared to their body as a child, it's kind of a bobblehead effect. So the forces felt on the brain are actually very similar to what, you know, your high school or college players are feeling. So, uh, you know, by eliminating that primary source of impacts, we can greatly reduce the number of impacts. Flag football has substantially, excuse me, substantially fewer impacts um, per event and per season than tackle football. We're never going to prevent every impact where, you know, people will fall Things will happen, but we can prevent those that are inherent to the game and just delay them until they're a little bit older and stronger and um, their brain has developed a bit more. What are some of the consequences of that sort of trauma on the growth of, of maybe even the entire body and, the, and that uh, maturation? Yeah, so with the body, you know, delaying impacts can really allow the body to mature more. Um, and reduce injury at younger ages that might take kids out of sports. Uh There are certain injuries that happen in kids um, with bone growth, for example. If you disrupt a growth plate, that can really have some detrimental Mm. effects if it's not treated properly. Um, And with the brain, we've seen differences in our studies that we did uh, with former football players, some of them former NFL players, some of them only played through high school or college. Mm -hmm. And we saw differences in the brain and pathways connecting the right and left sides of the brain, and a structure that serves as a, a relay station for the brain. And we also saw differences in, in brain function, things like learning and memory and um, you know, the ability to inhibit impulses, things like that. So uh, these are differences that we saw in them years down the road, though. So these differences may not be quite as um, obvious or observable when they're younger, but these are some differences that we've seen later down the road. Um, And another concern that people have about long-term consequences is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. Uh, It's it's something that you may have heard of with former NFL players. Yeah, and it's been all over sort of pop culture, and I wanted to ask you about how that might, you know, uh, affect the youth brain. Yeah, and so it's it's a really important question because I know a lot of people have pulled their children out because of fear Mm -hmm. of CTE. And really, one concussion is not going to lead to CTE, even a couple of concussions. What it seems to be is the repetitive impacts over years, you know, thousands of these impacts can lead to CTE. And when you think about, you know, playing from 8 years old to 18, even as high school, you know, over those 10 years, you're, you are incurring thousands of impacts. So um, the more impacts, the worse or the more the likelihood is for CTE from what we know at this mm. point. Yeah. But... What it seems like with playing young is that we may be, as part of disrupting that development, uh, diminishing our reserves. So we may not notice it right away, but there are studies that showed that uh, people who went on to get CTE, if they started playing younger, Mm -hmm. their symptoms started earlier. So if you think about somebody who played younger and maybe didn't fully develop all the way, they may not notice it through life until they get older and interact with a degenerative disease or even aging, and now they have less to lose before symptoms start because they never quite built up that reserve. We think, you know, there's more research to do, but we think that may be one reason why they're seeing symptoms earlier. Hmm. Julie Stamm is our guest, and she's the author of a new book, The Brain on Youth Sports, the Science, the Myths, and the Future. And we're having a discussion about uh, brain trauma in kids in sports, how to avoid it, and what's being done uh, research-wise. And it sounds like in in um, sort of like sports rules, how, how they're changing in order to protect kids and their brains. I appreciate you sort of laying that out. Um, there has been so many different discussions about uh, CTE and, and how it affects the 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 brain. Uh, and a lot of parents are scared, right? Like they're are, are worried about, you know, what that future will be for sports. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, and I really appreciate it. You know, it's important. Steam, team sports are great for kids and for their, their development. Mm-hmm. But how can the question is, how, how can we keep them safe from this? And it's not, as I understand what you're saying, just the issue of a concussion here and there, but this, this repeated um, trauma to the brain. I'm wondering for those parents who are curious about how do you know when it's time to pull your child out of a sport or um, or to make that change, what advice do you have? 
Yeah, it's, it can be really difficult. Um, you know, there are a lot of social pressures to play certain sports, and you know, not just for the child, but also for parents and and the community. So, I advise you know if if you have other options like a flag football league, uh, it's a great option to learn the game of football and uh, not you know incur all that repetitive brain trauma. But it's a great way to introduce kids to the game, and maybe they can transition to tackle as they get older. In later middle school or high school. So that's a great option. And if you don't have that, you know, you can be an advocate in your community and work with other parents mm-hmm. and try to form a flag league um, or maybe work with other nearby communities to do that. So that's maybe easier said than done, but it's something that <laughs> yeah. can definitely be done. Um, so I definitely recommend that. When it comes to deciding about um, pulling from a sport, Oftentimes that occurs with concussions too. And so that's a conversation with a, a doctor about, you know, how much trauma has a child experienced, how many concussions have they had. And, and that's a, a conversation with the doctor to determine, you know, maybe a different sport would be better for yeah. that child. Um, but, you know, with the repetitive impacts, really just trying to limit that until they're older. So, um, you know, looking for alternative ways for them to be involved in sports, but just not hit their head repeatedly yeah. because all of those benefits we talked about, mm-hmm. none of those benefits of sports require you to hit your head. Yeah, it's good. That's a really good point. And one thing we haven't talked about either are, are uh, protective equipment like helmets and mouth guards mm-hmm. and, and, and things like that. Are uh, requirements for these sorts of protective equipment changing? Uh, are they getting better or, or what kind of difference do they make? Yeah, I think it's a big myth that helmets can prevent concussions. Helmets do a great job of doing what they're meant to do, which is prevent skull fractures, which mm-hmm. is really important, but they you know, aren't going to prevent a concussion. You don't actually have to hit your head to sustain a concussion. So just a blow to the body that can oh. cause your head to move back and forth like whiplash, uh-huh. that can cause a concussion too. And, that, and that's another um, myth as well that you have to hit your head. So if you don't have to hit your head, then a helmet isn't really going to protect your brain. It does help. It's not going to hurt, but we're never going to have a helmet that's going to prevent every concussion. Yeah. Uh, and also, helmets, they vary like, a lot in price, right? You know, there sure. are some helmets that are $1,000, you know, over $1,000, and some that are a few hundred dollars. And most helmets have basically the same amount of protection for the brain. So Virginia Tech has really? helmet ratings that you can look at and... Um, Many helmets, you know, rank very well, even if they're only a few hundred dollars. So going out and getting a really expensive helmet and thinking that's going to solve everything isn't, isn't really the case. And mouth guard, uh, it's kind of the same thing. Mouth guards protect your teeth, and they might prevent or help at least to dissipate some forces with certain impacts like to the jaw, but um, they're not going to prevent concussions or prevent the effects of repetitive trauma. Earlier, you mentioned that team sports have changed. New regulations are being laid out. But what changes in sports could be made in the future that you'd like to see? Yeah, there have been great uh, changes in in some sports with eliminating that uh, repetitive trauma. So eliminating checking and eliminating heading at the younger ages. And it's still soccer and it's still hockey. And football has made some great changes, um, really with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. to reduce that trauma. Uh, I think at the youth level, they could go farther to just eliminate tackling and you know, use flag or tackle bar and kind of slow, slowly bring kids in. They have a great youth development model that has many positive um, aspects to it, but they never really say when exactly it's okay for a child to start tackling. Mm-hmm. And I would advocate towards waiting until at least you know, well into middle school, seventh or eighth grade, or even high school, um, to bring in that full contact aspect of the sport and just teach other aspects at a younger age. There are many great NFL players who didn't play until, or didn't tackle, excuse me, until they were uh, in high school. So it's not going to hurt the game. It's, it might actually bring more kids into the game. Wow, which is uh, something that I think we all want as well. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Julie, for sharing your research and your perspective with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Julie's the author of the new book, The Brain on Youth Sports, The Science, the Myths, and the Future. You can follow Julie and her research at her website, juliestamm.com. Thank you for listening to 
The Lisa Show. Welcome to The Lisa Show. When I was younger, we had to take piano lessons. And now, years later, I'm super, super glad that I did. And I enjoy playing the piano. And now I kind of wish that I could play more instruments. So that has transferred into an enthusiasm Uh for musical instruments for my kids, some with success, some with not. So when I was younger, I was given the opportunity to go to a summertime band camp. And when I went away to uh, this summertime band camp, I thought drums. I was going to, you yeah, know, I was going to bang the drums. And I got there and I went, well, this isn't nearly as fun. It's just, mm. you know, the banging sound of the drum. So I found myself uh, playing the euphonium <laughs> for several years. For five years, it allowed me to travel. I didn't know this about you. To travel and to play with various traveling bands while I was in middle school and high school. Yeah. Euphonium. The euphonium. It's like if the. No, I know what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you can. But for people who don't know, if the uh, tuba had a younger brother, that's Mm -hmm. what the euphonium uh, looks like. It's, It's also called the baritone. I don't know any parent who doesn't have the conversation. What are we going to do about musical instruments <laughs> with in regards to their kids? And whether or not you have good memories about learning an instrument, it can be a really important and a rewarding part of your kid's life. And believe it or not, it doesn't have to be a battle that you would expect. A lot of those fights kind of about practicing and not just the idea of learning uh, couldn't be avoided with the kind of setting yourself up for success. So how do you actually do that, though? What does that mean? Well, today we wanted to have a conversation with a guest, Jeff. Jessica Peresta, a music educator, and that uh, she also help, works to help other music educators become really good resources for, for students and parents. Um, and so we're excited to have you, Jessica, in on this conversation. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So I love the idea that you are passionate about this and that you just want to encourage everyone to be like, hey, there are better ways to sort of get kids to practice when you're trying to decide um, even before you've set out on this journey about which instrument to learn. Um, But I'm wondering if you could give us sort of a bird's eye view, right, of why it is what what the problem is of, of why even before we've had this conversation, we know it's going to be a struggle. Yeah. So first of all, I feel like a lot of parents just aren't comfortable with music education. If maybe they are not like the three of us where you learn music in one capacity or another. So it's just the unsure of, will I even be able to help my child practice if they start music in any way? And then it also is the child maybe not sure that they can do it. And there's also a lot of other things pulling at kids' attention nowadays. I have three boys. I know this to be true. And then so they just can get frustrated easily or not know if they're going to be able to accomplish this instrument. And the parents don't know if they'll be able to help them. So I think there's those stumbling blocks just to kind of get over with over at first. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about approaches, you know, some are very hands-on, some are very hands-off, and there's lots of different, you know, the practice charts and ideas, right? What approaches actually work? So this definitely will depend on what teacher, if you're in a private lesson, like you said, the practice charts, some use them, some don't, some use, there's some great apps now for practicing and things like that. But the biggest advice I can give around this is to motivate your kiddos with praise. You know your kids better than anyone. Focus on how they're practicing to make sure it's the most efficient practice time when they sit down at their instrument. You can, even if you're not a musical person, you can kind of tell right away if they're just sitting there, you know, picking at notes or if they're really practicing and set aside a time that works well for your family to have practice time. And that's important. Um, And you can also share stories with your kids about music and how you learn music or even that of a grandparent. And that will motivate sometimes your kids too, because they're like, oh, you did something maybe not similar, but you have learned music before. So I think those things are important to consider. If music isn't a part of your family's fabric, but maybe that child is looking to explore into it, how do you have that conversation if you're the the adult that has no idea what to expect? 
Yeah, that's where I think technology nowadays comes in so handy because, you know, even YouTube, you can go and maybe it's not even watching someone play an instrument, but you could watch a live performance or you could listen to an interview with another musician. Maybe your child has a favorite musical artist and maybe even listening to a interview by that person of how did they get started in music in the first place. I think that will definitely sometimes help motivate kids. I had a conversation with my son the other day about Ed Sheeran. He really likes him. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's cool, but I don't, I'm not as into him as my son. But mm-hmm. we started talking about his history with his learning disability and things like that. And it really helped motivate him because it was just a cool connection story. So finding those connection stories for your child of who they're interested in or want to learn more about will really help. So when you are talking to parents and they come to you with sort of like, uh, a, a stress or or a problem, what do you find that you're mostly talking about? Uh, well, uh, when it comes to practicing? Yeah. So, yeah, well, like I said, it's just that my child doesn't want to or they they would rather go play outside with their friends or they're so tired from school that they just, it's like one more thing to do. And I, those mm. are usually the biggest mm-hmm. things I hear. And, you know, as a private lesson instructor, I can tell the kids who practice and I can tell the kids who we've worked on the same song for four or five weeks in a row. And a lot. then you kind of pick, break down, like, what's going on and you figure out what's causing that. And that's, yeah. So those are a lot of the things I've heard. So how does helping your kid find the right instrument play into all of this? Yeah, I think that plays a huge part in it <laughs> because when – and a lot of times that's hard to know, like, what instrument do I start them out on? But um, when you're, if your child is interested in learning an instrument, they will be excited about learning it. And a lot of times it is hard to find what that is, but you'll be able to tell, is your child practicing this instrument? Is it you wanting them to learn it, or are they interested in it? And sometimes your kids won't come up to you and say, I'm ready to learn an instrument, but you can kind of see that they have a musical talent or they're just there's something there that you just want to pursue. So you start them on something. But yeah, I think when they are learning the instrument that really works, that they're really interested in, it will motivate them to keep going for sure. If you're just joining the conversation, we're talking with Jessica Peresta about being able to work with our kids and and introducing them uh, maybe to music lessons, musical instruments, and, and uh, the motivation to be able to do those things. I would be curious, is there... You know, Lisa sort of queued up this conversation with the the basis of piano, and it seems like for a lot of my friends who are musicians, they sort of learned the piano, and that gave them the introduction to music, music, scales, notes, etc., and then maybe they adventured into the saxophone or the guitar. Do you think that that's a good, basic, easy-to-understand instrument, and then it can be, you know, almost like a... Um, like a, the, the introductionary, uh, an introductory instrument to others? I really do. And I, I say that not because I am a pianist. <laughs> you know, it's definitely a great starting instrument because, first of all, kids, if you're not familiar with what a clef is, when you're reading the music on a staff, the clef is the treble and bass clef. They're learning all of it. They're, they're using their mind to read and then using math skills to help them with math. And it easily transfers to another instrument because they're already using, you know, their finger dexterity and finger strength. And by the time they, if they do want to go from piano to learning another instrument, a lot of that musical theory as well, like you mentioned, is already there. It's already been established. So it's easy. It's an easy transition to another instrument. You know, I I think it's a funny thing, too, to talk about from like an educator's point of view of the things that they really want or excited to get to, but just don't aren't able to because of the time hasn't been sort of invested and you know it's just that kind of that higher level of just enjoying being able to play and really feeling it musically um do you have an experience or an example where that really happened to you and it was particularly I don't know like uh encouraging and inspiring as as a way to sort of help us understand what it is uh, the, the the big goal that we want for our kids Inspiring kids to learn music, is that what you're asking? I'm sorry. Yeah, and I think that, you know, going beyond just learning it, but then actually experiencing it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Um, honestly, I think, like I mentioned earlier, is making music relevant to your kids. Like, what are they excited to learn about? What are they 
what are they passionate about? Not just with what instrument, but what mm-hmm. style of music? Is there a certain genre of music? Is there a way of learning that works best for him, for them? I know, for example, when it comes to piano, method books are amazing, and that's what you start. Those are the beginner, you know, basic books. But those also don't work for every child. Some kiddos who maybe have a learning disability, that's really hard for them to learn that way. So it is about finding out what they're interested in and finding a teacher who's the right fit or finding the right musical ensemble that's the right fit if they're not in the private lessons. And just making it enjoyable, another way to do that is by being part of the learning process as a parent where you you feel like you're just a part of it and you're asking questions and you're excited about them learning is a huge thing too. What, what about, and this is not us, this is not the attitude of us, but I, I have heard this talked about among, uh-huh. you know, parents, uh, the, the parents who will say, why does he, she need to learn something like that? It's not like they're going to be a rock star yeah. or a professional musician. What do you think the benefit on just a, a, a kid's life is by incorporating music? Yeah, that's, everybody's not going to be a world-famous musician. That was my dream growing up, to be a concert pianist. Life shifted, and it didn't happen, and that's okay. But everybody, you know, it's like kids that take sports. They're not all going to be going to the NBA, and that's okay. But music is an outlet. It is definitely a way for kids to express themselves. It's important for brain development. It, Like I mentioned earlier about learning piano, it really, when you learn music in general, It encompasses every subject matter and really um, helps your kid's whole brain. And it's also all around us, right? It's at sports events, church, school, commercials, ice cream trucks, the one that keeps driving in my neighborhood all the time. Mm -hmm. So kids just growing to appreciate the arts, it'll turn them into adults who want to advocate for the arts and in return will inspire their own kids to keep learning music. You know, I think... Ideally, you know, we all want our kids to be able to have a part of that. And whether our financial situation is a little bit tight or we've got lots of multiple kids, I wonder if if everyone is aware of all the options that are available to them. And I'm, I'm wondering if you'll take some time to to uh, help to sort of educate us all on some of the choices that we might have if we have extenuating circumstances that we might not have previously considered. Yes, definitely. So what's really neat is a lot, there are so many nonprofits nowadays that they are providing instruments to schools for free where their YouTube, like I mentioned earlier, it can be a mixed bag. Some of it's great, some of it not so much, but there's so many free lessons out there available too. So don't let the financial situation stop you because there are even music lessons that give scholarships to kiddos. And so Look around. My first advice would be to look around in your community to see what's available, even things like the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club. A lot of times we'll have volunteers that provide instruments or free lessons. Um, And think about what your child would want to learn. Is it an in-person lesson? Maybe there's an online lesson that's a better fit. And those are sometimes more affordable. And and that's definitely dependent on what you want as a family, too. But um, or if they're wanting to join an ensemble, if it's a public school setting, the, besides the payment for the instrument, which the band directors and orchestra directors are definitely willing to work with families as well to be able to afford those instruments, but the programs themselves are part of the educational day. You know, I want to ask one final question before we let you go, and it's sort of outside the box of the conversation that we've had, but it, it it's adjacent, so I, I feel like it's appropriate. If we were raised in a household where music wasn't sort of uh, endorsed or influential, and as an adult we really feel like we missed out, is this something that only the kids can do, or as adults can we start to uh, spread our musical wings? Oh, completely. Adults can definitely learn music. It is something, yeah, I'm so passionate about music, as you can tell. Uh, It won't look the same as it will for kids, of course, but I think what's neat about adults deciding to learn, for example, I had sort of picked up guitar, but it was the same semester as my piano recital in college, so I was getting blisters and all the things, but so now... I'm wanting to pick up guitar again, and I'm wanting to learn. And people are like, oh, well, you're already a musician. It's totally different than piano. But adults, you can learn music. You're listening to this. Don't let fear hold you back of, oh, I'm so far removed from it, or I really wish I had kept going. It's never too late to learn a new skill. So definitely 
adults can definitely continue learning music as well. Jessica Peresta is a music educator, the founder of The Domestic Musician, where she works to help music educators and entrepreneurs find their path to helping students love music. You can find more of her work in her book, which is called Make a Note, What You Really Need to Know About Teaching Elementary Music. You can find her on her podcast, The Elementary Music Teacher Podcast, or online at thedomesticmusician.com. You can also follow her over on Instagram at Jessica Peresta. Thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. you for listening to The Lisa Show. Now, we talk a lot about, I think in our society and certainly on this show, mothers, right? And all that's asked of them. But what about fathers? They play a vital role in a family's life. And when a child has a nurturing father, the child's more likely to develop emotional intelligence. And this is really important, not only for individuals and families' development, but also for our society as a whole. Imagine if we had a society full of emotionally intelligent people, people who could really uh, exercise empathy and understanding. Uh, I mean, I really think that it's the goal that we all want and have in mind when we start our families and when we are, are trying to strengthen them and we talk about how to do that. So we want to focus our attention and our conversation on fathers and how they fit into this. So today we've invited Kevin Schaefer to join this conversation as an associate professor in the Department of Sociology. Um, His research is primarily focusing on father involvement with children and the effects that it has on their well-being throughout their life. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. So when we talk about uh, fathers, and I just want to jump right into this and just acknowledge that sometimes it seems like we can leave out fathers um, out of the discussion when we talk about children's development and focus primarily on the, on, on the mothers. Why do you think that we do that? So I think it's a, it's a couple of reasons. Um, primary among them is that we think that moms are uh, primarily responsible for the health and well-being of their children. Um, that's a sort of a social expectation that we have in our society. Um, and I think because moms tend to spend more time with their kids, we tend to think that they are far more important than dads are. But the research suggests that dads are as important as moms uh, are in all kinds of ways. And I love that. And so I, I want to really just focus in our conversation about, you know, no matter what your situation, whether you have a father involved in your life or you don't, that talking about this can benefit society as whole. And, and, and I'm curious, do you think that schools or social po- policies and healthcare systems make it easy for dads to be engaged in the home? What is your experience with that? No, I, I, I think that, uh, that those kinds of institutions actually make it quite difficult for dads to be involved in the home. Um, the best way I can describe this is actually through personal experience. Okay. So I have four children um, of my own. I've actually never been in an ultrasound room that actually has a seat available for me um, when I go in to see my baby for the first time. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I've been treated like I was sort of a nuisance in a lot of ways. And in, in part, uh, that makes sense, right? Like OBGYNs are focused on moms and babies' health. And they don't tend to think about dads as important parts of that system. And yet there's all kinds of research which suggests that dads are incredibly important for the health and well-being of moms and, and the health and well-being of children. So our institutions really don't do a very good job of integrating dads um, into uh, into the the birth experience, and they don't do a very good job of integrating dads into the experience of mm. raising children uh, through schools, et cetera. So your research then focuses primarily on what, and what do you hope to do to change that? So I focus on those barriers to father involvement, in part because dads tell researchers time and again that they want to be more involved in the lives of their kids, but Mm -hmm. they find it really difficult to do so. And so by illuminating those barriers and figuring out those things that make it difficult for men to be more involved, we can then work, you know, as sociologists 
as policymakers um, and as other uh, stakeholders to get dads more involved and more engaged in pretty easy and simple ways. Okay, so let's talk about those ways. And um, and I want to, before you answer that, back up just a little bit when uh, and, and define sort of this term about um, being emotionally intelligent. Um, you know, we, we throw it around as if a, a lot of people understand what that is, but I'm wondering if you could define that and then, and then go into some simple ways that you feel like um, would increase the likelihood of having emotionally intelligent children. Sure. So emotional intelligence, I think you're right. It is, it is a bit of a buzzword mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but what it tends to mean is that one is able to express their emotions in healthy and acceptable ways. So through communicating um, their emotions, um, by feeling their emotions, not being emotionally stoic, in other words. So being okay with sometimes being sad or angry or whatever it might be. Um, mm-hmm. But then doing that in a healthy responsible way. Um, Of course, some emotions can go too far too fast. So that's what we really mean here when we talk about emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. um, in in the work that I've been doing. And so what are some some simple ways that that fathers who, like you describe, want to be more involved but aren't can? Sure. So I think, you know, primary among them is, is really time. Um, I think one of the real difficulties that dads have um, in their lives, and I'm, you know, sympathetic to to this um, in all kinds of ways, is that they feel really pulled between the 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 things that are most important in their lives, their job and their family, and they think that sometimes that job is the most important thing that they do, as opposed to the family being the most important thing they do. Because they see the, the money that they're bringing in, the time that they're spending at, at work as really central and important to their, uh, to their parenting and to their, how they work with their spouse or their partner. So when the, the primary among these things is really putting your focus and attention on family uh, first and figuring out ways to, uh, to have appropriate work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting because it's it's what mothers worry about as well. So in that partnership, what do you think that is is so specific to fathers that maybe we don't consider when talking about parenting that we should? So, yeah, I mean, first off, you're absolutely right. That is um, something that mothers have experienced for a long time. And dads are finally experiencing it for the first <laughs> time really ever, uh, in part because we know that dads want to be more involved, but they also feel pulled by work. So the experiences that moms had, you know, 50 or 60 years ago initially are the experiences that dads are going through for the first time really ever in this generation. Um, What dads can do um, in that situation is, you know, we really need dads to advocate um, Hmm. for uh, better work policies. We need to have dads advocate for uh, them to be more accepted in parenting spaces. Um, we need dads to really think through uh, the ways in which they can um, be more uh, involved in the lives of their children and in places like schools, in the healthcare settings, etc. And to be less focused on sort of those common social norms that were, you know, historically, uh, you know, strong, but are weakening over time. What are those less uh, focusing on less uh, common goals? Yeah. So I think historically dads have really been involved in a couple of things. Okay. Um, one is breadwinning and the second mm-hmm. is really disciplining their kids. And beyond that, that was really, you know, not much beyond that was considered the paternal role. But today, now we know um, that dads are considered caregivers um, in all kinds of ways, in the same way that moms have been historically uh, put in that caregiving role. So one of the things that we found in, in our research is that having a dad that's really involved and really uh, strongly engaged in the lives of their ch- children, meaning that they're warm, that they're emotionally supportive, that they're disciplining their children in positive ways, Mm. um, that they're showing emotion and love and and all of the things that are most critical to the health and well-being of children, that that pays, that it goes forward throughout life, right? There's a sort of a a quote-unquote pay-it-forward sort of issue here, which is Mm. that those dads themselves um, 
parent in the ways that their fathers uh, parented were parented them. Sure. So yeah. So as we as as we think about that, that is really um, the key uh, to all of this is parenting in a way that that you really would want to be parented yourself. Yeah. It really plays a really really important role in in shaping. Um, these emotionally intelligent children. We're having a conversation with Kevin Schaefer, who is in the Department of Sociology at Brigham Young University, about the impact of nurturing fathers and how nurturing fathers raise emotionally intelligent children. And I appreciate you laying out the the research that you've done and and the ways that the problems that we have, uh, maybe that are unique to this generation that maybe we're experiencing for the first time as a society. I'd love to uh, go back to something that you said a little bit earlier about uh, sort of the definition or the uh, or the determining factor between being a nurturing father and a stoic father and traditionally what that means and how we can individually like you know determine oh what kind of father you know did i have what kind of father am i mm-hmm. um and, and and what kind uh you know do i hope to be in the future what are the differences between those two sure that's a great question so the when we think about what an emotionally stoic dad is, maybe the best way to think about it is the sort of the strong, silent type stereotype mm-hmm. uh, that exists among dads, the, the John Wayne sort of figure, um, so to speak, which is to say that those dads really aren't highly involved in the lives of their kids, um, don't really say things like, I love you. I've talked to many, many, many men sort of my age. I'm 41 years old. Okay, I've talked to many, many men my age who've told me, that I can't really remember a time that my dad said he loved me. Like, oh, I, wow. I know that he did, mm-hmm. and I know that he does, but he doesn't really express it in all kinds of ways. You know, so yeah. really, are you expressing those things? Are you being demonstrative towards your kids? Are you, you know, hugging them? And even if they get kind of annoyed by those things, you know, they, they, they do like it. And it's really important um, telling them that, they, that you love them telling, them, telling them that you're proud of them, listening to their concerns and the issues they have, and, and not just trying to solve their problems for them, but really listening and, and listening for those emotional cues um, that, that they want to express to you that, you know, their difficulties, their triumphs and, and everything in between. You know, I think a lot of people will listen to this and think, well, you know, if you know your dad loved you, then why does he have to say it? You know, if he was able to express it, don't actions speak louder than words? And what's what's your response? Yeah, so um, I think I think actions do matter, but I think words matter a lot, too. We know that when dads are really warm and affectionate and emotionally supportive towards their kids, that they produce these emotionally intelligent children themselves Mm -hmm. in ways that are different and unique from the way moms do it. So I think there really is something above and beyond that dads, when dads are demonstrative towards their children, that is just really unique, really different from what Mm -hmm. moms do. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that we shouldn't just make an assumption that, that, uh, especially as fathers, we should make an assumption that our kids know that they that we love them, that we should really tell them that yeah. we love them as much as we possibly can. So there's no misinterpretation. <laughs> Precisely. For those who want to, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes our intentions, especially as we become adults, are good. But but actually knowing what to do is an entirely different thing. If a father is like is this, thinking, you know, I, I want to be more present with my kids. And again, that's another term we throw around as if everyone understands what that means. Or, you know, I want to be more available or I want to be more involved. What are what are ways to sort of shift that mindset and not just physically be present? Right. And I, I think that you raise a really good point there. When we talk about presence, sometimes we talk about dads as if they're this magical figure that through osmosis, right. their kids just exactly. are amazing because their dad like exists in the they're room here. at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And, it, and it, that's just not what it is, right? right. So um, how can we do that? I think, you know, one thing that dads need to do, I, I think that someone could listen to this right now and, and, and think, oh, man, I'm really not a very good dad, and I, I don't know if I can be a really good dad. Yeah. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is you can be a good dad, and it's always a process. Um, it's going to take time and effort and energy, and you're not always going to get it right. Right. And that's perfectly okay. In fact, there's something about not getting it right and then admitting to your child that you don't get it right all the time. 
that's actually really powerful and important in and of itself. But there are lots of things that are available to dads. There are, there are tremendous websites out there that can help dads become more involved and more engaged. Um, there are classes available all across this country uh, yeah. funded by the federal government um, that will help dads learn how to be better involved and better engaged. Oh, wow. Um, you can go to a website like fatherhood.gov and find one in your area. Um, I've done it myself. I've gone through a class myself, and I found it to be tremendously helpful to not only learn those skills that really I wasn't taught as a kid, mm-hmm. but also to hear other dads and hear about their what they think are their strengths, things that they do well, and things that they need help with. Um, and communicating with other other dads is really important. Having that social support network, I think, can be really powerful um, in in helping you become a better father. You know, some of this information is hard for a lot of people to hear. Um, you know, personally, uh, you know, my children have lost their father last year. Uh, if you look at statistics, a lot of uh, most single mothers who who struggle, sometimes d- dads just walk out, you know, and, and, and knowing right. the importance of fathers and and. And and I certainly do. Um, what what's your advice f- for those kind of uh, mothers who want that kind of influence in their children's lives, but maybe don't have the opportunity? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that that um, fatherhood is is more broadly defined than motherhood is in a lot of ways. Hmm. So we think about stepdads, we think about mentors, we think about grandfathers and uncles as father figures. So. Seek out those father figures. Seek out those people that can can help raise um, those children and be a strong influence in, in life if that's something that you desire and something that you want. Um, um, uncles, uh, grandfathers, etc., can really have a strong, powerful influence on the lives of their kids as well. You know, we in the in the survey that I've conducted, we actually asked people who they consider their their father. And a strong majority of them, something like 80%, say it's their biological father. But that means 20% of people are saying it's not their biological father. It could have been their grandfather, their uncle, Mm -hmm. another relative, um, uh, a mentor, a pastor, etc. People came up with all kinds of people in in their own lives. And mothers, too. Several people said that their mom was actually their father figure. So... There are all kinds of ways that people can act as father figures um, to children and have that strong, positive influence on kids. I appreciate having this discussion with you um, and, and, and really just bringing to light the importance of fathers and fatherhood. I think that's something that we don't really talk a lot about. I only have about 30 seconds left. Is there anything else that you would like to leave us with um, about about fathers? Um. No, I just I really enjoyed our, our conversation and, and just highlighting the importance of dads um, in the lives of children and that we can do more to have these conversations um, both as, on individual levels and within social institutions. So thanks for having me. You bet. Well said. Thank you, Kevin. That was Kevin Schaefer. He's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Brigham Young University. Hop on over to The Lisa Show at BYU.edu for a chance to make a connection. This is, you know, we want to be a little bit vulnerable Mm -hmm. and just say we are very social people that work in radio. And so a lot of times we have to imagine the people that we're talking to. (laughs) We love to talk to people and make those real connections. And one way that we do that is by reading your emails and talking about uh, back and forth about what you like about the show or ideas that you have or an insight into your life and how it is affected by the sort of conversations that we have. I know it's a big ask or it seems like a big ask, but the Lisa show at BYU.edu is a great way for us to make a real connection. I don't know that I would have a friend named Merlene. I'm just going to speak it into the universe right now, Uh, you know, because of this show. Because of someone who emailed in, we are friends with a woman named Merlene. Yeah. We would not be friends. Um, let me speak only for me. I don't know that I have ever met a Merlene otherwise. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure that I would ever have a friend named mm-hmm. Merlene, especially one as special as the Merlene that we have met, mm-hmm. without the email. 
uh, that we have asked you guys to send. The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Now it's like we're friends. It's yeah. like I come in, I go, has Merlene emailed me? Yes, she has. What are we talking about? And I'll be honest, sometimes I go, I don't even know what we're talking about. And then I have to remember, oh, yeah, we talked about that yesterday on the show. Yeah. Uh, it's The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Whether it's a connection that, you know, builds a Merlene friendship of a lifetime or you just like to say, hey, you know what? I really appreciated when you guys spoke to parenting teenagers. That's yeah. something that I'm really struggling mm-hmm. with. Or, you know, meal prepping has been something that I, I've always wanted to do but haven't understood the financial piece of it. Thank you for talking about that. We love hearing from from any and everyone about that. It's the Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Sometimes, too, I think about the emails that we've gotten, and it helps as we're making conversations so that I, I know, for instance, that Kimberly is listening, and she listens to the show. She has a, a pie-making business. Mm. And so she said, you know, she likes listening to the show because she puts – the it on podcast mm-hmm. while she her kids are asleep and she's making tons of pies and so she's got this long process to do it and for some reason that just like makes me so happy warms my heart knowing that that we are it's like we're having this conversation in her kitchen and then I think of delicious pies is the reason so let me speculate this out for a minute is the reason why Kimberly's pies are so good <laughs> like like point zero 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 one percent because we are being in her ears as she makes the pies. Can we own 0.001%? Yeah. I'll take That's credit. the secret ingredient. It's a pinch <laughs> of the Lisa show. But knowing those like little details is so rewarding. And we want to make those connections. The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. You can find us on the BYU Radio app. Be sure that you subscribe to The Lisa Show. Now, wherever you get your podcasts, there is a big button. Sometimes it's bigger than in other places. Uh, It says subscribe. If you click it, you'll make sure that you get every single episode of The Lisa Show. And you do not want to miss a single second. Now, we'd love to hear from you. Things that you'd like to hear on The Lisa Show, uh, other ideas that you have for guests, and just to say hello to be part of The Lisa Show community, you can email us at thelisashow at byu.edu. Be sure to make great use of that subject line. That always helps us know where you're going with that email. If it's just a, hey, there's a guest suggestion or... Oh, I'd love this topic to be on The Lisa Show. We would love to hear from you. The Lisa Show at BYU.edu. Thank you for making The Lisa Show a part of your day.